Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Ravenel's accused of helping his client, a drug dealer and others, in a criminal conspiracy evade law enforcement. He literally brought, I'm not exaggerating, he literally brought another briefcase. Chin came to me some time ago to ask whether I would testify as a character witness. But I guess I would say it's not an enormous surprise to hear that he's involved in a case on the other side now. This is episode eight of season three, The Missing Money. I'm your host, David Payne. The federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook. You a crook. He a crook. Everybody a crook in prison. There are a lot of disparate facts surrounding the death of Jonathan Luna that either support the theory that he was murdered or he killed himself. But there is one fact out there that uniquely supplies oxygen to both theories. At the conclusion of Nako Brown's trial for bank robbery, $36,000 of shrink-wrapped cash evidence went missing. And that fact, which occurred almost a year before he died, sits at the center of the controversy as to whether he killed himself to avoid being outed as the thief, or if he was killed by those who actually took the money. Former Baltimore Sun reporter Gail Gibson recalls how this fact played out in the reporting and the investigation. From the very first night Jonathan went missing, it would have been irresponsible as a journalist to not also put into conversation this earlier case that had not been very long prior where the cash evidence handled had gone missing. Can you tee up what you remember about that, how it happened, who the players were, how Jonathan was connected and so forth? Sure, so that that was a bank robbery case that Jonathan was prosecuting, and that stayed as a shadow throughout this investigation. There were questions, you know, is this one of the reasons that the U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't want to talk that much about this case or doesn't want to make public all of their findings in this case? And so when the theory of the suicide first became public, It was another point to look back at what questions were still there around the bank robbery case and the missing evidence. And could that have driven a person to feel like they didn't have other choices other than to end their life? And the salient fact to making a connection between the bank robbery case and Jonathan's death was that he was reportedly scheduled to take a polygraph about the missing money two days after he died. So if Jonathan knew what happened, if he knew, for instance, that an FBI agent or a courtroom clerk or a defense attorney had taken the money, 
he was a threat to them. But if he knew he was going to get caught, well, better to stage an attack on himself for sympathy, take his life, and maintain his honor for his family. And after his death, with no official resolution as to who took the money or how, people around the courthouse would make up their own minds on whatever scraps of information they would hear. Defense attorney Archie Tuminelli. What I know is this, and I can't tell you how I learned exactly what the source was, but it was all information that I received. And so, you know, at that time, the U.S. Attorney's Office was in the same building as the court. And at the time when this incident occurred, when they were in trial, they would have like this big cart. They put all their documents and exhibits on and they'd wheel it from their offices to the courtroom when they were in trial. And at the end of the court day, between the courtroom and the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was discovered that the money had disappeared. And it presumably happened between that courtroom or maybe someone could have gotten the money off the cart. So I, I know that in the courthouse, not only did the U.S. Attorney's Office or DiBaggio believe that Jonathan took the money, but so did people in that courthouse. I'm sure the consensus was that people believed that the money went missing because of Jonathan. This sticks in my mind. He wouldn't take a lie detector test. And what did you read into that? Well, he's the one that took the... He was the one that grabbed the uh, money. I mean, I just, there was no doubt in my mind about that. What do you remember about kind of the talk around the courthouse? Well, basically, whoever it was that told me, as far as I was concerned, ended there. Of course, when you come right down to it, it didn't really matter what the rumors were or the scuttlebutt was. There were, in fact, only a handful of people in the room where it happened, and three of them spoke to us for the first time on record. The judge, who presided over the trial, Andre Davis, Jonathan Luna's co-counsel, Jackie Rodriguez-Coss, and the man who stole the money in the first place, Nako Brown, and who believed his attorney, Ken Ravenel, perhaps even working in concert with Jonathan Luna, stole it from the court. But when I tendered Nako's theory to Judge Davis, his reaction was, well, visceral. Ken couldn't have gotten within 100 feet of that money (laughs) once it left the courtroom. And by the way, you know, it was not a small package. (laughs) It wasn't going in anybody's briefcase, okay? Whoever took it, who knows, but it wasn't going in a small suitcase or a satchel. Well, of course, if it was broken open, who knows, but... You're talking like a trash bag. Somebody put yeah, it in a trash yeah. bag. Yeah, it was, it was shrink wrap, but you, know, you could see through it. You could see through it. It was bigger than a basketball. It was bigger than a beach ball, as I recall. I mean, again, 36000 in 10s and 20s. <laughs> you know, it was, it's a lot of cash. Yeah. It's a lot, lot of cash. In your uh, 302, when they interviewed about the missing money, you called the case something like a shit show. They redacted it. So, you know, I said, oh, yeah. You're a man after my own heart. (laughs) I said, I "I remember this case. It was a redaction. (laughs) 
I'm guessing that's what that was. Guilty as charged. I think that had to do, you mentioned the, you know, the escape attempts with the hacksaws. You mentioned the crazy costumes. You mentioned the pleas. When you think about it as such a shit show, are those the elements of it? Or should we add on to it the missing money? That too. All of the above. And you refreshed my recollection when you sent me the docket sheet. I was reminded he tried to fire Ravenel. And I think he tried to fire Ravenel more than once. So that's what made the case, whatever it was, I called it in that 302, talking to that agent. Yeah, I'm gonna guess it was shit show. That's how it really. <laughs> so let's talk about the big thing that happened after the trial. Let's kind of go through it sequentially. So my recollection is that near the end of the trial, what Jonathan and his colleague did was they put the case agent on the stand. And then there came a moment when, I guess, Jonathan or the other assistant reached down in this box and pulls out this, I think there were three, shrink-wrapped in plastic packages of U.S. currency. And they sort of, you know, this was like show and tell. This was, see, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we got these guys because here's the money that they took The whole thing took probably five minutes at the most. I mean, all he did was set it on a desktop in front of the witness chair. And so he walked over, he put it there and he, you know, Mr. Agent, can you tell the ladies and jury what that is? And I remember thinking to myself, everybody can see what it is. (laughs) It's it's a shrink wrap package of U.S. currency. And then it went back in the box and the, the government's case came to an end. And I think it was the next day that I learned from my courtroom deputy, Judge, you're not going to believe this. I'll believe anything because anything can happen. What? The money is missing. I said, what do you mean the money is missing? <laughs> what are you talking about? The, the money that they introduced in evidence is missing. Well, you know, the rest is history. And eventually, of course, the FBI opened an investigation and I was interviewed. Everybody in the courthouse was interviewed. And my understanding is that, I guess, except for the judges, everybody they interviewed, they questioned, are you willing to take a polygraph on this matter? And to my knowledge, everybody said yes, but I don't think they ever developed a strong suspect. The insinuation, of course, was that Jonathan was somehow involved in that. And I'm just wondering, how does that strike you as someone who was in that trial, knew Jonathan about his character and so forth? Honestly, it is, I almost said inconceivable, but that would be an exaggeration because honestly, at my age, with my experience, I have to say nothing is inconceivable, but I can't imagine He was a genuine individual. He struck me as a person of deep integrity, of a true public servant. It would take an awful lot to persuade me that Jonathan was involved in the disappearance of that money. And it just didn't strike me as possible. So if the judge was right in his assessment that Jonathan wouldn't have taken the money by nature, and Ken Ravenel couldn't have taken the money because it was too bulky, then who took it? There was one other attorney in the courtroom for Nako Brown's trial 
who might be able to answer that question for us. His co-counsel, Jackie Rodriguez Koss. And as luck would have it, she agreed to tell us her story for the first time publicly. I've never had a case where we actually had money like this sealed. I remember being surprised when, when he brought the evidence in from the FBI and I was like, oh my God, we have the actual money bags, you know? But in any event, the evidence in the case included seven bags of money that were seized during a search. And the important thing about it was that we could trace that money to one or more of the bank robberies because of the serial numbers of the bills. Can you describe the physical bags of money? They were clear. I want to say somewhere between, they were like 18 inches, I want to say maybe in length. And then maybe eight, 10 inches width, I think. You know, when you seal meat and you get all the air out of it, they were like that and they were clear plastic. Do you remember at what point they went missing? Yeah, I do. I'm positive about that. So I do remember clearly that when the trial ended and the case was submitted to the jury, it is customary for the AUSA and the defense attorney and the clerk of the court to go over the exhibit list to make sure that the court has all of the exhibits that have been admitted into evidence and that those exhibits are going to be available for the jury to look at, discuss during the course of their deliberations. And so I remember that happening and all of the exhibits being there. And I also specifically remember at the end of the trial, after the guilty verdict was heard, and now we are receiving the evidence back from the clerk's office, going over the list of exhibits and checking off every exhibit that was on that cart. Because I want to make sure that the clerk is giving me every single exhibit back. And so every single exhibit was on there. I would not have left the courtroom without, <laughs> without an exhibit. And um, I, I kept that list. I went over that list and I put the check marks next to each exhibit. And I remember when this whole thing happened, that the money went missing. In my mind, to me, it went missing sometime after that. So where would it have gone? So you check off. It went into that evidence room. We have a little cart that has wheels. And as she's giving me back the exhibits, I'm checking them off. It's on the cart. Uh, yeah. 7G, 7F, 7. It was, I think it was seven. I don't remember what, but I think the exhibit numbers for those bags were seven. And there were seven, I think. I forget. So as she's giving me and we're marking off the exhibits, it went on the cart and we wheeled it out. Anyway, it went on the cart. And the interesting thing was, the we she was referring to was not her and Jonathan, but her and a young FBI agent named Tony Campagno. And I remember Tony and I wheeled it out of the courtroom. We wheeled out that cart from the courtroom and we're wheeling it. You asked me about the proximity, Jody. It was not far. Like we come out of the courtroom and we went like half a hallway and then into the entrance to our office. And once you enter our office, that evidence room was like, to the left, like shortly thereafter on the same hallway, right there on the left. And so we're coming back and we're about to enter our space. And he's like, oh, I forgot my time-lapse video machine or something in the courtroom. And it belonged to the FBI and you know, I lose. And I'm like, okay, well, let's go go back and get your video time-lapse video time machine. 
And I went on, like I didn't wait for him in the hallway. I opened the door to my office. I told him, I said, I'll put it in the trial prep room and I'll lock the door. And he had the keys so he could get in. So I opened the door, I wheeled it into the trial prep room, I locked the door and I left. We were done. I wasn't gonna do anything more. Yeah, there's nothing else for me to do at that point. We had a verdict, this is done. And what he needed to come back, pick up the evidence and then bring it back to his evidence room in the FBI office. And Jackie Cost knew a little something about the Baltimore FBI evidence room since she was married to a Baltimore FBI agent. So when was it determined that there was money missing then? I didn't find out there was money missing until the next day. I took the next day off. One of my best friends was in from Puerto Rico. We were in D.C. sightseeing most of the day. And I called my husband just to check in. Hey, we're still in D.C., hanging out, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He was like, oh, my God. Thank God you call me. The FBI is looking for you. Oh, that's a real weird thing for your FBI husband to tell you, right? <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, the FBI is looking for you. There's been an issue. They, they need to talk to you. You need to call them right away. And he gave me the name and, of an agent. Of course, I called him right away. And I think that might have been the first time he said, you know, some of this money has gone missing. I need to get a statement from you. And I was like, what? So what I learned later was that when Tony went to check the bags into evidence, there were six and one was missing. But I learned that later through, you know, secondhand. So somewhere in between the trial prep room and the FBI evidence vault is when it went missing? That's what, that's what I believe. I'm conscious that those seven bags, according to my list, were on that cart. So you know now that one of the things that has been floated out there by the FBI is this dark hint that Jonathan somehow took the money. Had something to do with it. Jonathan wasn't with us. You're clear that there was no way that Jonathan had anything to do with that missing money. I have absolutely zero reason to think that Jonathan had anything to do with that missing money. What about the defense attorney? Would they have had access to that money? No, I don't think so. No, they would never have been in the custody of the attorney, the defense attorney. Were you the only lawyers using that particular room? We were the only ones using that particular room. And so you you were locking the room. Who else would have access to? So here's the thing. This is something I learned later. So mind you, I've been in Baltimore a little bit over a year. But I found out later that other people had keys to that trial prep room. I was not aware of that. I don't think Jonathan was aware of that, that other people had keys to that room. Our impression was that we had the key to that room. I left the office after I wheeled the evidence in, but Jonathan wasn't there when I wheeled that evidence into that trial prep room. And Tony couldn't have taken more than like, whatever, like what, five minutes to go back into the courtroom, grab a VCR and come back, you know. Of all the people associated with the missing money, Jackie Koss's assessment, as she had the chain of custody of the money after trial, carried the most weight with me. But it also had to carry weight with the feds because it was not only given under oath, but strapped to their machine. I was polygraphed, as we all were, right? Anyone who was in contact with that money were automatically looked at as suspects and we were all interviewed and we were all polygraphed. 
So if, as Koss testified under oath, this money went missing after it was locked up in the U.S. Attorney's trial prep room, then three things were true. First, the list of suspects must now almost exclusively consist of federal law enforcement personnel. Second, those same law enforcement personnel were responsible not only for investigating themselves for the missing money, but for determining who was responsible for killing Jonathan a year later. And third, those same federal law enforcement personnel were also responsible for leaking disparaging information about Jonathan Luna to the Baltimore Sun. It never occurred to me for a single second that Jonathan had anything to do with the disappearance of that money. And what's so unfortunate about that, Jackie, is that what has been painted in the newspapers right. is this direct tie between Jonathan's fear of being outed as the criminal in the missing money case leading to this breakdown to where he killed himself. You know, I remember Jonathan as an unbelievably committed father. There is just not any part of me that could possibly believe that he would have abandoned his children in that manner and put something like that on them. So there was nothing he ever said or did that would indicate any sort of suicidal tendency or concern, at least to me and the person that I, that I knew. The FBI investigation into who took the money took well over a year. They interviewed at least 84 people and came to no definitive conclusion and no charges. Do you have a theory about what happened to the money? I have no idea. You know, I don't have all the facts. I wasn't privy to the investigation. And so I hate to comment on something like that when I don't have all the facts. You know, I've told you what I did. I know the agent had access to the money. It's strange to me. I've said this before. And how do you leave that room and not know you don't have seven bags with you? You know, I, to me, that's a little difficult to, to believe. On the other hand, he was a young, inexperienced agent, and I've seen young, inexperienced agents do a lot of knucklehead things, not necessarily with any sort of malice or intention. But I don't have a conclusive theory as to what happened to that money. But it always did bug me that it was the FBI office in Baltimore conducting this investigation because one of the people who touched the money and who was closest to it and obviously had the opportunity and ability right, was the FBI agent himself. And I'm not saying that he's responsible, but I'm saying is if you're looking at the scene, you're going to look at me, you're going to look at the FBI agent who was with me, who tur later turned in six bags of money. And so how you leave that trial prep room and not go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I don't know. They should have been recused. It should have been a different office doing this investigation. Next time, on the season finale of Somebody Somewhere. I go back to my experience investigating violent crimes. You have to let the evidence speak to you. I'm really curious to know whether he ever admitted his involvement. Does he admit his involvement to you? He does. Yes. Okay, okay. There was a whisper campaign about his personal life and whoever knows anyone, right? What they do in their personal time. 
sixth grader could have figured out. You should ask more questions. How could that be? What y'all meant for evil, God meant you for good. And that's what our purpose is, is to save lives. Here goes the devil telling me to lie again. But tears I'm around me says it's all right to pretend that you can get more than you give. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Dear God, I hate to say I'm sorry, but I just want you to love me, even though I still love money. I need more money.